Hi there, this is Michael Barker-Caven, the Artistic Director at the Civic Theatre, and I'm delighted to be here in the studio with Claire Monnelly, who is writer, uh, performer, inventor, conceiver of a fabulous show we've got with us this week called Charlie's a Klepto, uh, running between the 11th and 15th of March at the Civic in the Studio Theatre, um, selling very heavily, so if you're interested, do get in quickly, because we've only a few tickets left. It's brilliant. Um, you're quite local, Claire, aren't you? You uh, I am, volunteer. Yeah, volunteer, just up the road, yeah. yeah. Did yeah. you, as a kid, did you ever come down this neck of the woods? Or yeah, absolutely. And I actually did a panto in the Civic when I was 14 with Socky the Sock Monster. Socky the Sock Monster. Um, so that was my, my first time on the Civic stage, but I've, but I've been back a good bit since. Because you were a bit of an early addict, weren't you, if I remember? I was, yeah, I was. I you started got the disease. Doing yeah, real early. I started to. I was a bit of an activities kid, so I did loads of after school activities every, and to keep me off the streets. And I did. I started drama at eight, uh, but then I realised that was that was it. I found my thing. I'm crap at sports, but I'm good at this, and everything else kind of fell by the wayside. So I kept it up. Then much to my my poor mum's um, dismay. She didn't think it would catch on that strong. So You were meant to be an, an accountant or I mean, a, a teacher doctor or, or something, something useful. Or, or at least marry one, you know, like just <laughs> so uh, disappointment all around. And what was it, do you remember, uh, and I assume it has to still be with you because you don't have any kind of a career unless there's some light that's kept alive inside the madness of this profession. <laughs> do you remember what was it that made that light go on when you were eight? Because there's a lot of... You know, we get a lot of young kids come through, wonderful kids come through the theatre and and they do, you can see that something starts to switch on amongst some of them and yet other ones sit back and go, oh, oh I don't know if I'd like that uh, and they lose out. What, what, what was the miracle that happened to you that stayed alive? I think I just realised that I had a gut instinct for it and, you know, it, and like I was, I was good in school and I, and I liked school and everything but I never... Um, I never loved academia or anything and I never loved sport and I was always a bit rubbish at sport and I liked being good at things. I was a bit of a, a bit of a nerd. And so when I found this thing that, that I was, I was just not, I was just natural. I had a knack for it. Like I just, I just had an instinct for it. And immediately, you know, I started to get good parts in the plays in the drama school that I was in and it just kicked off from there and it never stopped. And I think that, that gut instinct and that gut drive to be involved in acting and performing and in the arts just never went away. Even when I did go away from it, you know, to I wanted to go to drama school right after my leave insert and my folks were like, funny, get a degree, um, which I did. And I'm glad I did because I was, I was 17 leaving school and I would have died a death in drama school at that point. Um, so by the time I got to drama school when I was 23, I really, like I, I was so determined that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to give it a go. Even if I failed miserably, I was like, I, you have to try. Because then at least you've tried. And if you fall flat on your face and you have to go and work in the bank again, grand. But you have to give it a go. So I was really determined going into drama school to the point where I was like, I don't need to make friends here. I just need to learn my craft. I was that kind of, you know, for the first while mm. until I chilled out a bit. But yeah. yeah, just that drive within me to do it, to always be doing it. It's a funny when you mention the word craft maybe a word that's becoming less and less used in mm. many ways perhaps um, and yet that's never going to go away that it is a craft it is a skill it is a series of learnings that you have to absorb to have a, a toolkit that enables you to, to to summon things up in loads of different ways and to be able to convey it to people in a way that's meaningful and truthful and interesting and exciting how long did you remember when the bits of all of that excitement and hunger started to kind of gel what, what sort of things 
land, landed with you went, ah, oh, now I know it's got to be like that or this is what I've got to do. Because a lot of people say, oh, how do you learn all those lines as if that's all it is? It's not about that, is it? <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that problem um, as well. I think I'm, I don't, I think that's still happening to me all the time. I don't think there's, it was ever one moment where I went, I have this now. And I, I don't know if that would be healthy or good either. Like I still, I still sit backstage, particularly on this show, I still sit backstage in the two hours leading up to the show like really, really, really having to focus my mind and get in the zone and it's like every night is a total roller coaster and I, I, I do, I feel more and more in control of it but there's a, there's a tiny element of it that's just her that, that, I'm, that I don't have full control over and that's the beauty of live theatre even though it horrifies me as well. Um, yeah, like I, I mean, I knew when I went to drama school, I knew, like I said, I knew I had this instinct or this knack or whatever, but I knew that wasn't enough. I knew I had to learn and be taught and, and figure out the craft, like you say. And um, and there were times in drama school where I felt like I had something, then it was gone. And I think that's a constant, mm. a constant evolution of you as an actor and mm. between working for, uh, on stage and going to screen, but every job. Like, I don't have the same process for every job. I have a different... And I don't know what the process is going to be when I go into it. You know, I don't have, like, really strict routines around things. I mean, I warm up for every show and all, but it'll be different for every job. And so I don't think... Much like at the end of every job, you don't know if you'll ever work again. You also don't know what your process will be for the next job when it does come around. Mm. And so, you know, you came out of drama school, you've done great work, you've been... Your, your, your talent has shone through from the beginning and you've stuck at it, you've gone through the hard part, you've done, you've you've learned your craft, you've begun and have been for a number of years working in all the major theatres, getting into television, nominated three times, Ireland's Best Actress at the Irish Times Theatre Awards, to come back to that. When did you decide you were also a writer? I didn't. I, 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 I never set out to be a writer and I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. But I loved drama school. I loved the routine of it. I loved the structure of it. I loved the fact that I got to go into that building like 50 hours a week and do the thing that I loved to do. That was such a gift, having done the college thing and having done the real job thing. And it was such a gift to get in there every week and, and do that. Essentially, I know I wasn't getting paid, but it felt like it was your job. And then it stops. And you leave drama school and it just stops dead. And you're out in the wilderness. And you're out in the wilderness and you're getting the dole and you have all this creative energy that has nowhere to go because inevitably you're going to be unemployed for a while. You're going to be unemployed between jobs. Even the steadiest working actors in Ireland are unemployed at times. Um, and I, I had all this creative energy and it needed to go somewhere. So And that's when I started writing Charlie. And actually the impetus to start writing Charlie came when I was sitting in the social welfare office seeing if I could get the dole. Um, and her voice was kind of going around in my head. And it, her voice was really clear. So I started jotting down memories and this, that and the other. And over the course of a couple of years, I did a 20-minute version of it in Smock Alley Collaborations Festival, which is now the Seen and Heard Festival. Um, and then it fell by the wayside because I got jobs. Uh, and then uh, on a, the, the end night of a fringe show I was in, I was out and Ruth McGowan was there, who now runs the Fringe, Dublin Fringe Festival. And she asked, she'd seen the original piece of Charlie and she said, what are you going to do with that? And I was like, oh, I don't know, Ruth, whatever, like, I don't care. And she was like, you need to go into the cell and Fringe and keep writing that play. And lo and behold, this was about 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Lo and behold, at about 9 o'clock on Monday morning, I had an email from Ashing O'Brien saying, I hear you're coming in to use the cell. And I was like, well, I am now, haven't I? Um, so I kept writing it and then again jobs came and another bit of time passed by and I saw the Axis call out for 
uh, the towering above the rest bursary. So they had a, a small bursary to give to various artists to develop work. And I applied for it. I wanted a week to develop the story with Aaron Monaghan, my director, Sash husband, um, out in Axis. And I, and I got that. Um, and at the end of the week, we did a little reading, like a 20 minute reading for some theatre people and some friends and some locals out in Ballymun. Uh, and at the end of the reading, Eve Nicohor came to me and said, we want to produce it. Um, so it all kind of happened almost by accident. Um, but I do think that the impetus to write came from a place of wanting to get a bit of control back. Mm. Because it, it can feel very disempowering as an actor to think that your whole career or the trajectory of your future life lies solely in the hands of other people and is so much down to luck and timing and all of those things. So I wanted to have a bit of control back. And by writing Charlie and by by having somewhere to focus that creative energy And into, cast yourself in the lead and role. And cast myself in the lead role, you know. obviously. Um, that I, I got a bit of that control back, but then I also got the bug. Mm. Um, and I realised that it was something that I could do uh, and, and could do well mm. and wanted to do more of. Tell us about Charlie then. Um, Charlie is uh, a young one who's had her baby taken away. It's funny, people ask me what this play is about and I say, it's about a girl who's had her baby taken away, but it's funny, <laughs> which sounds like an oxymoron, but she's a young woman who had a bit of a tough start in life. Um, her dad left, her mom had a drink problem and she was kind of left to her own devices to some degree and she um, developed a bit of kleptomania and started shoplifting at a young age. Um, but she, at the point that we meet her, she has that all under control. Um, she fell pregnant and in the early days of having her kid at home with her, um, something happened and that he was taken away. So we meet her after a three month probationary period where she's been told she needs to get a flat, get a job, get her life in order and then they'll see if she can have him back. And we meet her just in the 24 hours before she's going to find out if she gets him back. And of course, as his theatres want, everything goes a bit awry for her. Um, so she's she's quite a character and it's quite a journey for her. It's 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 a real roller coaster of a play for me as an actor, for her as a character, for the audience trying to keep up. It goes at a lick, like it's 75 minutes and it doesn't stop. Um, it's a real... Uh, it's a real emotional roller coaster and everything for her. Um, and over the course of the the time we spend with her, she starts to come around to the idea that she needs to take responsibility for herself and for her own actions if she ever wants to get him back or ever wants to be a, a, a real proper mom to him. Um, so, yeah, so a lot changes for her in that time. Um, but she's very like... I mean, she's, she's rough around the edges and she's not perfect, but nobody is. And I think that's why audiences connect to her so much and, and invest in her over the course of the play. And in terms of um, when you set out to write her story, you heard this voice in your ear. Mm. And this is, was this your first real piece yeah. you've gone through? Yeah, How, you know, did you have a model that you wanted to work to or was it just going, as you say, on gut instinct about how you want... Because you've got all of these elements, fast, funny, exciting, heartbreaking, packed into 75 minutes. It takes a lot of control of imagination and also dramatic intent to to hold those elements together. How many drafts did you go through and things like that? Kind yeah, of? well, I obviously had never done this before. And the 20 minute version that I wrote for the Collaborations Festival was very much um, 
it was her sitting in the office about to go in to find out whether she's going to get him back or not. And it was essentially just her going off on loads of tangents with memories from her childhood, some of which have survived into the current piece, some of which didn't. Um, so her voice was crystal clear in my head. Um, and for 20 minutes, that worked perfectly because she is that charming and she is that endearing that you would happily listen to her talk like that for 20 minutes with no real narrative arc happening. And then I sent it to a friend of mine, Lee Coffey, who's an incredible playwright, to get some feedback from him. And he very gently, very kindly told me that there was no narrative arc and that there were no stakes. And that's what the play needed. Um, so that was a revelation for me as somebody who'd never written a play before. But I'd just seen Slice the Thief, which is one of Lee's one-person shows, um, and like that's another roller coaster of a play and it's one, another a similar kind of character who's a bit of a mess a bit of a screw up um, and every decision he makes just kind of makes things worse and worse and worse um, so then I went to when we went to Axis that was my drive I was like I have I have all her backstory is clear her life what everything that went before is there solidified in my brain her voice is clear as day but what I need now is something to happen some real stuff to go down in this time period that we spend Something, with her the stakes, so that there's danger that, yeah. that there are stakes that people are on the edge of their seat and that's when myself and Aaron sat down and, and I told him the story the narrative arc of that 24 hours and he just spent the week being like why 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 did that happen she can't mm. come out on that road she went in on that road draw me a map of that place there yeah. um, and and we banged out that narrative and then over the course of um, that was in November and then the Axis commissioned me to finish writing the play. Um, and I spent that money on my wedding. So I had to finish writing the play. <laughs> Don't tell them. Don't tell them. <laughs> um, that was good research. Yeah. Uh, and then I, so then I had to sit down and, uh, but Aaron was extremely integral to that, um, to that process. He has an incredible mind and eye for text and for story and for narrative and all those things. So I, I wrote that narrative that 24 hours everything that went down from start to finish um, and he would send me these colour coded notes about what needed to stay what needed to go what needed to be elaborated upon um, and then he was the one who took the memories the flashbacks and and slid them in yeah. at the points where they happen in the play that kind of breaks it up a little bit um, but it also puts everything in context for the audience mm. just these little because if, if you had that narrative arc happening with her and all the all the mistakes she makes and all the bad turns she takes in that one twenty four hours, I, I don't, would you be with her? I don't know. But when you put everything in context for an audience, like well, this is what happened before, and actually this is kind of why I feel like this about this thing, and this is why I started Robin. Um, so he was really integral to, to the structure of of the play. Yeah, and I think um, that's incredibly important because a lot of the not wishing to be kind of generalists and dishing people's work, but a lot of the work I'm seeing the moment context is missing from so much work. Yeah. It's sort of people are kind of floating ideas around in bubbles and the audience sits there and go, you may be having a good time, but I don't know why I should care about this or where, how I frame this. Yes. And a lot of our problems at the moment is context is being taken away from us. So mm -hmm. caring about characters and therefore reflecting back to us about why, why we should care and invest in them is because we've got to have some shared understanding of that journey. And yeah. journey in storytelling is lasted for thousands of years for exactly. a reason. It's and primal to us. I feel really, really strongly about that. That theatre should be for everybody. And if your play excludes or makes any of your audience members feel stupid or like they shouldn't be in a theatre, then you're not doing your job. So 
even if you're writing about like my next play is about public shaming uh, and the online world and, and how we interact with it and all that kind of thing, which for some people might be an alienating thing if you're somebody who doesn't engage with social media that lot or um, so every reading I've had of it so far I bring my dad my dad is 75 and he goes to a lot of theatre that myself and Aaron do and, but I always bring him to the readings and, and he's one of the most important people who I sit and talk to afterwards and say well did it make sense mm. like did you get it as somebody who doesn't engage with Twitter or Instagram or did it make sense to you and they'll say well this bit did and, and this bit didn't and I'll be like well that's a problem then because despite the fact that the subject matter might be a little bit niche, you can't be alienating your audience. We can't be playing to ourselves and industry or making the whole time. Us, and, or making assumptions about the fact that because I understand it and we exactly. live it and get it, you must. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and I bring my... And my, my friends come to the theatre all the time. They're so supportive. They go to everything that I do, everything that Aaron does. And if ever they come out of the theatre and I can see their face and they're like, yeah. Mm. I'm like, well, if you didn't get it, mm. that's not your problem. That's our problem. Mm. You know, and there's some there's some... There's some miscommunication, there's some disconnect there and it's it's up to us to make theatre accessible to everybody and, and not an exclusionary art form mm. in a way that it, it can be sometimes. Mm. Well, you obviously have survived. Your, your marriage is still intact. So far, so After <laughs> X number of weeks. I mean, is it... <laughs> I mean, you know, so two great... You're both brilliant actors uh, to the finest we have. Um, you decide to get together and make a real dangerous part of competition or I mean, how supportive I mean I'm sure fantastically but share about that because it is yeah. I mean Aaron is you know like you a superb performer but you know you're always going to have your own way of doing things or little edges between creative people totally and you get married <laughs> what's that about well bad Love. financial decision to start with. Yeah, exactly <laughs> aside from that um I think people always ask that and it is it's an interesting dynamic to have in a room of course but I think what we have as a couple, and we're lucky because Aaron has 10 years on me in this industry. So when we met, I wasn't, I, I'd seen his work. I watched him on stage a lot before I ever met him personally. So I already had a great admiration for his work. Um, and I also, we had that thing where I was never comparing my career to his. Oh, I would have quit a long time ago <laughs> if I was. Like, um, so I have a great, um, a great admiration and respect for his work. I, he has, he is the hardest working actor I've ever met. He's an incredible, incredible work at work ethic. Um, and he's really, really good at what he does. So I'm just really, really lucky to have him in the room, to have him work with me on those texts. And yeah, absolutely, we disagree about things and um, we we argue about things for sure. But but we both really, really love the work that we do. And, and I suppose the upshot of having somebody in the room who is also your other half, is that I knew, like as vulnerable as I was putting this show on for the first time, my first ever time writing, my first ever time on stage on my own, you know, all those things put you in a really vulnerable position. But I knew I had someone with me who was as invested in the work and as invested in its, in its success as I was. And he wasn't going to send me out there on stage with something that wasn't ready to go. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's only, it's only been... And he's going to direct the next two plays... <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> that are in development at the moment so um, we haven't burnt our bridges with each other yet anyway uh, but we talk about work all the time and we love our work and we're always plotting and planning and um, yeah it's a real it's a real big part of, of our lives um, Well you need a support ne ne network and there is nothing better than yeah. a support network inside your own four walls so yeah. you know if it can work which of course it can work and does work it's a brilliant way of surviving the madness isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely yeah it feels like um, you know 
we, we can certainly turn it off when we need to but we don't always because we love our work so talking about it is is a happy place for us as opposed to being getting bogged down in work you know but mm. um yeah so far so good anyway and what and what's your perspective claire being a an emerging female playwright you know on this whole big issue words. big <laughs> words exactly how when does one when does one you know, when, does fully one, when does one emerge? Merged, to, I don't know. <laughs> fully emerged. You know, no, as a you know, is that something that resonates with you, or is, do you think it's something that's kind of taken up a life of its own, which is now skewing the the, the, the territory? I mean, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it, it's all about the work. It's all about the work and getting the work made. And if I can apply for some funding for emerging female playwrights, that means I get to develop the next play, then absolutely I'm an emerging female playwright. Um, whatever whatever it takes, like whatever it takes to get the work made. I don't feel separate from my male counterparts. I don't feel any different. I feel like I have a different point of view because I'm me and they're them. Um, and certainly my point of view is absolutely female and it's 100, you can't, but bring yourself to the work that you make, that you can't leave yourself at the door as a writer, as a performer, anything. That is your unique selling point. That's why I'll get apart over somebody else is that there's something about me that makes it that bit different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, I honestly, you don't have time to think about the semantics of who you are and what you are and where your place in the industry lies because you're so busy applying for money. <laughs> and uh, I spend more time make, doing applications now than I do writing plays but um, but it's, it's just it's all about getting the work made and also um, valuing the work to the point where you're not going to make it for nothing anymore like it, there has to come a point where and I'm only like I, I, I'm the second play that I'm doing is going to be on in the in the autumn uh, and I have a certain amount of support and there'll be a certain amount of fundraising that I have to do to, to get the money together. But I have this incredible team of artists on board, designers and performers, and Aaron as a director. And the show can only happen, it's pretty ambitious. It can only happen with that support and that backing. Um, and I'll do that once. Like I'll, I'll fundraise and I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to get the money together um, with a view to hopefully getting more support the next time round. Because the work keeps growing. The second play is a three-hander. The third one is a six-hander for six women. Um, and I and it's ambitious and it needs support, so it can't get made without it. So what you see so often in our industry, unfortunately, people get to a point where they've done that however many times and they can't do it again for their own mental health or their own financial well-being or whatever it is. And people burn out and around this time their careers, they start to fall away. Yeah. Family, just, houses. And just when they're, should we say, at the peak of their potential. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, I know I know things are tight, but I think getting behind, and I say it in inverted commas, em emerging playwrights, be they female or male, mm. is really important because we are the next generation of people, of druids, of rough magics, of corn exchanges. Um, you know, people like Bitter Like a Lemon, people like Glass Mask, people are people who've been doing work for so long for nothing. We need to get... It's, it's amazing that Lee Coffee's play is going into the Peacock now and they have the support of the Abbey behind them. But about time as well, because they've been making work for nothing for a long time and work of an incredibly high quality. Mm. Um, but you can only do that for so long mm. before everyone needs to start getting behind people and, and supporting the work. And how important in that, because you're right, one of the things that the people who... I always said when I was working with young actors training and things, I'd say, look, your talent is not the issue. 
you've got to have talent to even have a chance to begin in this industry, but have you got a talent for managing your talent? And a lot of people <laughs> don't. Absolutely. And they're not capable of seeing not only where they are now, but where the big picture is of how they're going to sustain it. That sustainability needs flexibility. It needs intelligence, maturity, strength, courage, um, resolve, and including doing things like wanting to work in multiple areas such as television, film, whatever you need to mm -hmm. earn, not only do good work, but also to earn that part of the living that may well allow you to do other things. Is that part of your thinking, Claire? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I from early on, I realized the need to diversify. Like I never, <laughs> I never started writing theater to make money, which is good. <laughs> um, but certainly in terms of uh, voiceover work and screen work and those things that you can uh, like, you know, shifting your talents around in whatever way to because I do want to have a really, really long career doing what I do. Um, but you have to be like you say, for it to be sustainable, you have to be able to diversify a bit and and figure out where you can adjust your set of skills to make a living. Uh, and I think the the real danger for actors coming out of drama school or whatever is to think that your that work's going to fall into your lap. Because it's not. Not. Listen to Claire. It's not. Like. And if you get an agent, <laughs> nothing that's happens. Not the end of, that's not the end of the journey. No. Like, And if you think that having an agent or even getting that first job is going to set the bar or set the ball rolling, then you're, again, you're just, you're wrong. Like, you, it's, a const, it's a constant battle. Not in a bad way. It's You need to be proactive. You need to work hard. You need to be out... Um, making your own work if you're so inclined or whatever it is but uh you, you do need to and also like I, I I always worked between jobs I always tempt between jobs now touch what I haven't had to do it in a while but there's a good chance I will have to in the next couple of years at some point or other go back and tempt for a bit because that's the nature of the work there isn't always work to keep going the rent has to keep getting paid um and there's no shame in that I'm really really proud of the fact I actually talk about it probably a bit too much like temp all the time um, but I'm really proud of the fact that when I don't have work I go and make money elsewise like you have to because like I said the rent has to keep getting paid but also like as well as wanting to earn money between jobs I started doing that for my own mental health because I can't sit around and wait for the phone to ring mm. I cannot do that. Now, in recent times, with the when the ma the making has kicked off and the writing and being in Six in the Attic in the ITI, um, when I've had gaps between acting jobs, it's been filled with writing and working and developing and all that kind of stuff, which is incredible. And I've had great support from the bursary from Tile Style and uh, getting to go to Anna McCarrick this year, but from Dublin City Council and you know all those things help develop you as an artist and help fill those gaps and help help you find your way into making a long-term sustainable career in this. But but I'm but I'm also really proud of the fact that I went back tent. Because sitting around waiting for the phone to ring is is bad for everyone involved. I destroyed it with that whole terrible old cliche saying if you don't use it, you lose it. That there's a Completely. kind of a momentum of um, self-motivated purpose that has to be built into the fabric of your career, mm -hmm. which means as you say, your own responsibility is held with you whilst acknowledging that you have to keep reaching out to someone else to give you work or to recognise you. But if you don't keep, in a sense, churning over that ability in whatever way you can, 
you can very easily retrench into kind of negativity and totally. fear. I mean, and you bring all that into a room. Yeah, and when you're absolutely. busy and you are working and you have things going on and you've got things you need to do and you've places you need to be and things you need to write, when you go into a room, you're buzzing. And that comes off you in waves and you're a match fit. And so when you've got an audition, you're not spending a week pouring over it. You've got maybe a day to prepare and you'll give it that many hours because you're not getting paid for it and your time is money. So you'll give it that much time. You'll be well prepared. You'll go into the room, you'll do your job and you'll go off doing whatever else you do in that day and you'll forget about it. And it won't be the only thing you do that day. So there won't be so much emphasis on it. So you're in a room and you're giving all that energy off instead of, I remember asking the casting director really, really early on about the, the don'ts of going into a room. And she said, don't come in needy. <laughs> don't go into a room mm. to bang a need on you. Because it's just, people are, not people are, look, like you said, talent, you wouldn't be in that room if you weren't talented. That's a given. So what they're looking for is, well, maybe a really specific thing that you may or, not be, may or may not be, so that's outside of your control. But what is within your control is to go into the room being somebody that they're going to want to be in a room with. Or on a set with because they've got they can trust. they've also got a. Pro, it's one of the things in auditions that young artists need to understand is that the people in the room, no matter how much power they seem to have, they have a problem. The problem is they've got to find totally. someone that they don't know, otherwise they'd have just picked up the phone and hired them to solve their problem. And you are the solution to their problem. And if you get that into your head as a young Completely. artist, and also I think I think I came out of drama school with the with the wrong frame of mind about auditions, thinking that you know. Like, everyone in the audition room wants you to be the one. Like, they're waiting for the one to walk in the door. So if you walk in and you sit down and you are it, they are delighted. Everyone behind that table is rooting for you to be great. Like, they're they're with you. And I've, I really, really, I've been very lucky, and I know not everyone's the same, but I really haven't had uh, the awful audition experiences that people talk about. I've, I really haven't. I've been really, really lucky in that sense. Because you go in being like, oh, yeah, I could be the solution to your problem. Um, and if I'm not, how bad? You know, it's not, I won't. <laughs> I won't starve. The rent won't go unpaid. I'll figure it out. Mm. Um, and I think that's so important um, for getting jobs, but also for just for your own sense of self. Uh, you can't. You can't give all your power away all the time, mm. because then what have you got left? Um, then you've got no power to lash out that audition and, and give it a really good go. Mm. If you're handing all your power across the table to the people who. Could possibly give you that job, may or may not, but won't and, be the end of the world. And it's also important that young young uh, artists coming into the business or doing this for the first time understand that, in a way, essentially, an audition is for life. That is, you may not be the solution that day, but if you do what you've described, walk out the room clean, leave that impression, really confident, professional uh, and interesting, that sticks Completely. In their mind, you'll be remembered you will be, be remembered and you will be back and suddenly it's a different conversation because you are more right for this than you were for that. And Absolutely, I think it's really yeah. important to think that way. And, every, and, like, and I, think, I think it might have been Brian Cranston who said it, is that like, <clears throat> if you look at auditions as your job for that day, then you go in and you do a really good audition, then you've done a really good job and that's the end of it. Mm. Then you, and I, when I leave auditions, I throw the sides in the nearest bin. Because I remember for my first few auditions, I used to keep them just in case. We're <laughs> just, just asking for trouble. So I find the bin, I throw them away, and that's my attempt. Now, I'm not saying I'm I'm brilliant at this. You know, there's ones that you really want that you do kind of think about until you hear the A or nay. But that's my thing of just throw it in the bin now and forget about it. Your job is done. Mm. Your job is done, and one way or another, what will be will be. Yeah. And, and the last piece of advice I'd give is 
beware of how you leave the room because I've never, in all the years I used to audition, I never saw, if only the very best people, when you said, like, you'd do the, as a director, you'd be saying, thank you very much, that's, that's all I need to see, thanks a lot. You'd always see this deflation, this moment of apology, this usually a cacophony yeah. of drop bags and apologies and crashing out the door and you go, I never said you did anything wrong. I just thank yeah. you very much. Absolutely. But and the that assumption could, that kicks in. That could be in. a thank you very much. I've seen you, you're it, just go because I'm putting in an offer to your agent. And I've got so 10 know. more people I have to see because we all agreed, but you were great. And I've said you were great. Thank you very much. But why are you apologizing as you leave the room? As yeah. you said, you just need to go in like you're describing. It's your day, your work do it well, clean out, leave as if it was exactly the way you came in. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's the... What do you do when... Um, when you, I mean, I know you're workaholics, yourself and Aaron, but <laughs> what do you do to... Do you switch off? Is there other aspects no. to your life? No. I mean, I think... Uh, I think it was Lisa Harding who came into us in the... I think is a novelist now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but she was an actor who graduated from the Gaiety and she came in to speak to us when we were in the Gaiety. And one of the things that she said that stuck with me was you cannot get all your happiness from your work because then you'll be really sad a lot of the time <laughs> when you don't have it. Um, and I think the most important thing about working in this industry for your own mental health is to not let everything else slide. Like, I spend lots of time with my family. I still have the same group of girlfriends that I had when I was 14. Um, in fact, the third play is kind of about them. But... Um, you know, you have to, you, you can't let the rest of your life fall by the wayside because you've got, I mean, like, look, I'm touring Charlie now and it's really intense and I'll be away for five weeks and I'll be up and down. But as, as much as possible, I'll still be in touch with everybody and they'll know I'm, I'm a bit of a hermit because, you know, I've, I've, the show is, is a big ask, but you can't let all that slide. Your friends, your, uh, your, your home friends, your family, the friends you, you meet in the industry who become your best friends because whatever, you gravitate towards some people and not other people. But, um, yeah, just maintaining those support networks and uh, maintaining all your relationships and not letting them fall by the way. So don't become that artist. Or I don't want to become that artist, should I say, um, that where it's all I can talk about, you know, because that's boring. Mm. Um, and even though your work is, like, the be-all and end-all sometimes to you. Like I, sit, like, I sit backstage before Charlie and it feels like, I'm about to go out and save some children's lives. I'm not. I'm doing a play. And once I come off the stage, I can go, you did your play. Well done. Grand. Go home and have a cup of tea. Uh, but we're not saving babies and we're not uh, curing cancer. We're, we're, ju we're just making plays. Uh, and while I feel they're incredibly important, and that's why I continue to do it, um, it can't be the thing that defines you. Because then one day, if you're not doing it, who are you anymore? Um, so yeah, I think I think your relationships with the people in your life define you, um, and I think the people who surround you um, reflect who you are as well. And that's really important to maintain all of that. Well, you've, you're with us for the rest of the week. Uh, great response, fantastic um, packed houses. There are a few tickets left, so do come and see Claire here at the Civic um, before the end of the week. The fifteenth is the final show, but then you're off. Tell us where you're off to after that. Other places you'll be visiting. The Will I remember now? We're going to Kilkenny, Letterkenny, Longford, Roscommon, Cavan, Galway, the Pavilion in Dunleary, um, Monaghan. I'm going to forget somewhere. Did I say Roscommon? 
15 venues over five weeks. Great. And you've got to be on a big tour bus, um, nice couches. <laughs> you know. We have Susie's car and a rake of lights. We are, we are low maintenance. <laughs> well, listen, best of luck. It's incredible what you're doing and um, more power to your elbow. And we look forward to having you back at the Civic with one of those two exciting new projects you've got. Claire, thanks it. very much indeed. Thank you.